So hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider. Today we're here with Song Hodes, a research fellow at the Paulson Institute. He also is a, a CIO of mine, having graduated from Peking University with a BA in economics. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me here. First, I'm curious to ask you what first got you interested in studying economics and and economic reform. It's really reading Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom. I think before I read that book, I really have no idea that actually the economic and political side of the society they're actually connected, and especially I really don't didn't appreciate the importance of economic policy and and the choices about economic policy on the welfare of a society, and this really uh really build up my interest in、uh, economic policy. So you've been working in the states for、uh, for a number of years now. Could you comment a little bit about the difference between studying China、uh, within the country versus studying it from abroad, and maybe some of the advantages and disadvantages that come with both locations? I think for for myself, I think the greatest benefit or the the most useful lesson to me is really to realize that actually Chinese economy is not that exceptional. So China maybe have the I think it's not just China. Basically, each country has its each unique institutional environment, institutional settings. But really, the underlying economic mechanism has been basically I think the same for every country. So, for example, I think anyone who who is familiar with a history of financial crisis, I think, should be able to really to understand. The, the vulnerabilities in China's financial system and their root cause really easily. Is there anything in particular you've noticed American commentators、uh, miss? You think when looking at、uh, China economic reforms? I think this is not just uh, uh, limited to uh, to uh, Western commentators. It's also to uh, some degree of uh, uh, presented in Chinese、uh, in Chinese among Chinese analysts as well. I think I think. Just it seems to me that most people, I think that's actually a correct, that assume that because Beijing is so powerful, is so powerful than basically any other governments, so that actually makes people to、uh, spend. To me, I think that probably spend too much time at guessing or interpreting Beijing's policy intentions. And and I think the flip side is really that、oh, sometimes it just oversees the possibility that. Beijing will not get what it wants, or even if Beijing eventually achieves what he wants, it may come with at a very large cost or lead to some unforeseen consequences. Example would be like, for example, Beijing's goal of promoting direct finance, which basically means uh, let uh, borrowers to、uh, to borrow from as through other bond or equity.、Uh, so this is really to diversify the risk. Out of China's banking sector, but in the meantime, China has very insufficient protection of creditors. So, under such a, such an underdeveloped、uh, corporate, corporate governance environment, you you should you should not expect that the、uh, direct financing can expand overnight in China. And actually, for example, the recent、uh, stock market crash. In 2015, is really the direct result of、uh, Chinese government trying to、uh, trying to use a big push or like 
great leap forward approach to develop its equity market, and it really end up very ugly and comes with very large social costs. So that's a that's a great transition into uh, our main topic for today, which is your uh, provincial spotlight series,、um, particularly its first few episodes on Liaoning. So Liaoning is a province in China's Rust Belt,、uh, and I'm curious if you could, or I'd like you to set the stage a little bit and tell、um, tell our audience why why it's important、uh, to to look at to look at provinces like this and how they can sort of act and how they may or may not act as a bellwether for China's future growth. I think the direct reason is back back in last fall, back in last September, there there was a Widely circulated and actually kind of a controversial report on how Jilin, which is actually one of the three northeast provinces, and、uh, which is actually next to Liaoning, and that report is about how Jilin can、uh, can escape from its current economic stagnation and how to better develop、uh, its economy, especially what government can do. To、uh, help to promote the local de- economic development, and that report is controversial in that it's actually uh, its main uh, uh, policies uh, recommendation is that、uh, not the, the economic the root cause for the economic stagnation in the northeast area is really simply that that the 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 northeast area has too much heavy industry like steel and steel and like auto. But they have not enough like light industry, and that is very like unconventional, and many people disagree with that. So there is a very lively debate back back in uh, last uh, September, and that was was just the time I、uh, I started to, to begin working on、uh, on this、uh, provincial snapshot series. So and by the way, I'm also actually I'm also originally from、uh, the、uh, the northeast area. So. Basically, those two reasons,、uh, two reasons that lead me to write Liaoning as a as the first piece, as the first area in this series. So, could you give our readers a sense of、uh, what the Chinese Rust Belt is and how、um, it's sort of lost importance in the overall yeah,、uh, Chinese economic puzzle? Yeah, it actually used to be the、uh, strongest local economy back in the、uh, central planning days. Basically, that's. That's between nineteen early nineteen fifty to to、uh, late nineteen seventy.、Uh, during that time, because actually before China started central planning, the north eco- the northeast economy already have a much more advanced and larger industrial sector than the rest of the country, and actually this advantage has been further strengthened during the plan、uh, central plan、uh, central planning era. But actually, this come with two uh, significant uh, long term uh, uh, long term consequences. The first is really、uh, the the expansion of the SOE sector. So basically, by the end of the uh, uh, at the start of China's、uh, market reform in the nineteen、uh, early nineteen eighties, basically all Liaoning's industrial economy is within the state sector. This is in comparison, for example, in areas like in the、uh, in the south, for example, like Zhejiang or Jiangsu, they they also have some SOEs, but they also have many like、uh, smaller but more market oriented、uh, enterprises 
uh, those that formed by the uh, the rural collectives, which which later been called uh, township enterprises and has been the driver of China's economic growth in both the 80s and the 90s. So the first uh, negative consequences from the planning economy era is really the SOE, and the second is really also the central planning basically restructured the Northeast economy in a way that basically each each city is organized just around one or a handful of flagship SOEs. The, the consequences of this is really that this is significantly uh, reduced the diversification in local economies. So basically, tie the fortune of this city to just one SOE. And and to me, I think basically SOE and this lack of diversification are really a two uh, two leading uh, leading uh, factors that contribute to the economic stagnation in this area. So could you talk now about Shenyang Machine Tool and how it serves as a case study for the failures of uh, SOE reform over the past few years? I think in order to understand the case of Shenyang Machine Tool, I think you need to first understand uh, Beijing's objectives for SOEs. Actually, I think from Beijing's perspective, actually Shenyang Machine Tool doesn't account as a failure. So it accounts as a failure in the conventional business sense. But basically, the platform was near the edge of default. It actually didn't default on its debt, but it's cl- very close to default. I think, I think the uh, is the debt to debt to asset ratio is something like more than ninety percent. And I think uh, back in uh, last summer, I think it was actually uh, bailed out by the state banks. So basically, it has went through a a so-called uh, debt to equity uh, swap. That basically the banks uh, swapped like. Uh, tens of billions of debt into equities, and the immediate benefit is that the Shenyang machine to no longer needs to pay interest on those debts. So, but yeah, that's from a, a conventional conventional perspective. Yeah, Shenyang machine to counts as a failure, but but I think from Beijing's perspective, I I, I don't think really Shenyang machine to counts as a failure because uh, ultimately, me I, I think. Chinese government's uh, objective SOE or their position for SOE is really that they want to use SOE as a reliable and effective uh, uh, tool to both influence and control uh, economy. So that requires the SOE sector should should remain influential in the economy and that influence can either come from size or come from the uh, market power. Many of the SOEs are they are they are monopolies, and also it also actually technology is also can be used as a source of uh, SOE influence. And e- exactly here, I think Shenyang Machine Tool on the one hand, uh, it lose a a huge amount of money. I think during the last five six years. But on the other other hand, it also managed to uh, to uh, achieve some breakthrough in the in the machine uh, in the digital machine tool uh, manufacturing i think in beijing in under beijing's calculation actually Xinjiang machine tools uh, technology breakthrough actually matters more than the than the billions billions lose it has 
accumulated over the years. So is this is this an is this a a, a a smart idea for Beijing to be prioritizing this, or what are the um uh, what are the downsides of this sort of this sort of thinking about how to promote um, industrial innovation? I think just as, as I said, I think industrial sure, but industrial uh, uh, industrial policy is part of Beijing's consideration. I think on a higher level. Just as I said, I think the SOE is fundamentally about is that SOE needs to remain, uh, remain influential enough so that the Chinese government can, through its control over SOEs, to control and influence the economy. So actually, this is not simply a matter of like, uh, simply a matter of like how much money SOE made, because I think, I think actually, uh, prof- profitability actually doesn't matter that much to Beijing. I think just if you just closely examine the China, uh, Chinese SOE reform during the past two decades, I think only to, only when SOEs become a significant burden on the uh, state fiscal position, uh, only during times like this that when SOEs is about to uh, to uh, cause like fiscal uh, a fiscal crisis. That Beijing will will impose like hard discipline on SOEs and really really uh, really uh, reform those SOEs, but otherwise, as long as SOEs basically uh, can ma- remain in business, so even if that means their their for example either their profitability or their return on assets is really low, much lower than their private peers, I think Beijing will accept that as long as. Uh, the uh, SOE is first is uh, formally in the hands of the Chinese government, and second that is uh, is uh, maintain an influential role in the economy. So that's that's really my what I see. So can you talk a little bit about how this power is actually um, uh, uh, used in practice and uh, the sort of corporate go- governance structures of these of these entities? Actually, I think. I recently began to be interested in this topics because there recently there been a trend that actually uh, to uh, empowering a party committee within SOEs. SOEs has historically always have a party committee, but I I don't think that in any time in the past twenty years that party SOE party committee has been promoted to such a or be uh, empowered to to the current extent. So basically, I think, uh, for example, if you look at the China, uh, the uh, the Communist Party's constitution, actually, the word describing the rule of a party committee within SOE is that basically that as SOE party committee has the ultimate say on basically all major decisions within that SOE. Previously, I think as recent as probably like as five years ago, the trend, actually the trend has been that SOE party committee will continue to exist, but it will function through corporate board. Basically that those, those, many, many of these, those SOE uh, party committee members will also uh, uh, have seat on SOE uh, board. And they basically uh, they, they, uh, exercise their power through board. But now this has taken a sudden change. This basically placed SOE party committee above uh, uh, SOE corporate board. 
So that's, I think that's actually something new and something, something that different than, uh, than even like five years ago. So basically under the current SOE power structure is that the SOE uh, party committee is above uh, SOE corporate board. And although SOE corporate board still has the authority to oversaw SOE management, but actually as in, in most SOE, in, in most SOEs, SOE management and SOE party committee, they are the same group of people. So basically, this is very control, uh, very different than, than the conventional corporate governance structure where you put board above management. Actually, this is the equivalent to you put SOE management ab above SOE board. So one of the other one of the other reasons you write about uh, Liaoning having a having a problem is the fact that it's much that it's uh, one of the one of the provinces that it's hard to particularly hard to do business in. Um, so there's some saying, uh, never invest north of uh, Shanghai Guan, which is a river. Um, recently, uh, the the struggles of business owners um, in the Chinese Rust Belt has been in the news, uh, where uh, Mao Jianhua, who's the chairman of a uh, ski resort, posted a video of himself uh, complaining about party interference uh, with his ski uh um, ski enterprises. So could you talk a little bit about um, this video, the reaction it had, and, and, and what it says about the broader business environment and frustration of business owners in Northeast China? I think actually to to the uh, Chinese public, I think that is actually doesn't account as news. This is basically re uh, reconforms their previous perception of the uh, bad investment climate. In, in China's northeast area, uh, as I think, as for as for the original, why this area has such a such a terrible business environment, I think there are like many there are many explanations ranging from say a culture, or uh, to uh, just uh, the, the legacy from the uh, central uh, central planning uh, planned economy era. I think actually my preferred explanation for this. Uh, for, for this is actually because the northeast area uh, actually lags behind other areas in terms of openness. Openness here, uh, I mean, like the the share of export and imports in the economy. As I choose to uh, use uh, uh, openness to explain uh, the the terrible uh, investment climate because I think. Actually, when the economy is relied on the export, actually this has effectively um, introduced a ceiling on how taxing the uh, local government can be. Here, ta by taxing, I mean both like uh, tax, like corporate income tax, but also like uh, red tapes and uh, regulatory barriers. So if, if the local environment is too taxing, actually then the local product will not be competitive in the international market and actually the local economy will collapse. But in many of the Northeast areas, actually their demand is actually mostly domestic and, and locally ori oriented. So that's actually to the government, actually, for example, when, when the majority of the local, local products are consumed locally or for example, are domestically, and local governments actually can, uh, can can force, for example, consumers to just buy domestic pro produced goods. 
but they cannot, for example, force like uh, international consumers to buy uh, buy their local products. So actually, because for example, in in Heilongjiang's case, Heilongjiang is a is a province where this a ski resort located in. I think export actually only account for like two percent or less than three percent in the Heilongjiang economy. The average figure for the uh, Chinese economy, I think, is something uh, close to twenty percent. It's probably now a, now a bit, little bit lower, but it's definitely probably still uh, higher than fifteen percent. So Heilongjiang is extremely, uh, is extremely close when you measure uh, by trade, and actually I think this this really um, makes the local government not care so much about the local business environment because they know that regardless of what they do, that local people, unless they leave, of course, local people can eventually vote with feet. And that's actually happening in, in the, the China's Northeast Africa. But it will be a very gradual process. But but in the meantime, local governments still can just use their power uh to force uh to force uh people to consume uh, the the poor quality goods, including the uh, including here in this case the ski resort the services ski the the state state uh ski re, state on stick ski resort uh, provided, so actually I think this is really the uh, the source or the origin of the poor uh investment climate in this area. So one of the things you touched on there was uh depopulation, which has a parallel, of course, to to America's Rust Belt. So are there any is- initiatives to um, keep young enterprising graduates to stay in the country? Um, what what is the government trying to do to reverse this trend? And um, do you think they have any hopes for success? Uh, actually, some of the larger cities in that area, say like Shenyang, I think they have uh, policies and incentives to recent graduates if they choose to uh, lo- uh, relocate to Shenyang. But I, I really don't think it, it will it will matter much because I think there's actually uh, there are actually two forces at work at the same time. One is the lack of economic opportunities and including the bad investment climate. This will uh, this will uh, stop people from moving to uh, to the uh, northeast area. The other is really the local low fertility rate. And actually, there are two forces at work at the same time, and I think it will be a it will be a really achievement if you can eventually overturn any one of them. And and right now, the northeast area needs to uh, reverse to overcome those two uh, two uh, nearly impossible tasks. I think is. I'm not very op- optimistic about that. Presumably, uh, this this sort of news story making it into the the national and international media. You don't expect to change anything. Uh, actually, this time, actually, the Heilongjiang, uh, Heilongjiang provincial government has been very uh, responsive. They basically uh, send a uh, inspection team basically the next day, and within a week, there the uh, the report comes that basically actually uh, support uh, this uh, entrepreneur, this uh, private ski uh, resort owners claim that. The local government has violated its property rights, but as to uh, maybe I think maybe in that this particular case, actually the involvement 
of the provincial government will help to uh, to mitigate the conflicts and uh, stop the uh, the local government from interfering in the operation and the property rights of this ski resort. But by and large, I think uh, as to whether this will help to improve the uh, the business environment in that entire region, I'm not optimistic because this is actually not news. Actually, I think most Chinese people, their perception of the Northeast area has been this for like at least 20, 30 years. So yeah, so it's really not something new and I really don't think that it can soon uh, change for the good. So on a prior episode, we spoke about the politics of protest, how uh, there's there's some sense within the Chinese government that having uh, that letting people have a, be able to have a voice and upset their and voice their concerns about the government is actually a good way for the government to get feedback on what's working and not working. So I'm curious if you owned a business in Heilongjiang or you were a business consultant, would you recommend that a factory owner um, that was having problems with the government record their own rant and put it up on Weibo? Or do you think this was a particularly risky move on the part of the, the ski resort owner? Uh, I think first, actually, this, uh, this particular entrepreneur, Mao Chenhua, he's, uh, he's very famous. He, he's a very famous businessman in China. So if you are just an average businessman, so even if you manage to post your rent, say, on social media, I think most people will just not care because this is actually, as I said, this is just a typical, typical phenomenon in that area. So people will not take this as news or pay a particular attention to that. Okay, so I need a few, I need a few million followers before I, before I use this tack to ring out some tax incentives or exactly. get the inspectors <laughs> off my back. Exactly. So another, uh, another development in the news recently has been uh, provinces and cities revising their GDP numbers down. Uh, Liaoning actually kicked this trend off uh, back in 2017, where it changed its numbers. So could you talk a little bit about this development? Yes, actually, even before the review that uh, Liaoning government has been uh, exaggerating is both its GDP and fiscal income and uh, industrial uh, value added numbers. This has been widely known that uh, economic statistics, especially at the provincial level, they are probably not very reliable. Uh, one simple uh, one simple test is really you just uh, add up all the provincial say, provincial level GDP and you compare it with the national level GDP. And I think still to, to the year 2016, the, uh, the sum of the provincial number is still like something like 4 or 5% larger than the national number. And if you look at some of the subcomponents, for example, GDP, you can break down into consumption investment. And, and actually the, uh, the, if you just look at the investment component, you will find actually it's more astonishing that the sum of the uh, the local investment figure is actually something like 30% greater than the national figure. And in absolute uh, terms, that's like a, a near 9 trillion yuan gap. So actually, this is entirely not a surprise that 
that, for example, some of those provinces they have they have been overreporting, for example, their investment expenditures or industrial output. But however, there's another actually interesting uh, interesting fact that has been revealed both in the Liaoning and in the later Inner Mongolia and Tianjin case is the fact that actually uh, industrial value added data has also been manipulated by local government. So this is why this is particularly uh, important uh, is that actually uh, for all the industrial firms above a certain size, actually all their uh, financial data uh, are directly reported to the National Bureau of Statistics. And, and the, the purpose of designing this system, of this direct reporting system, is really to limit the influence of local government in this process. But still, it's kind of like, as, at least to me, it comes as a surprise that even with this direct reporting system, that the central authority directly collects those data from this industrial form, that you still, you still have such widespread uh, data exaggeration, manipulation, and that's kind of like a surprise to me. So what are the incentives of the, uh, of the officials who are inflating these numbers? I think for one thing, it's, it's actually that actually GDP and uh, economic growth still um, matters greatly, um, I mean, uh, to the uh, political career of those local governments. And especially you need to take in this into consideration is that actually when, when basically every city or every, every county is, is exaggerating numbers, for example, you just to uh, to appear that your 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 region is a, is an average player, it probably will require you to manipulate the data. So, and another actually, you you talking about political incentives. Actually, another interesting thing about uh, the recent uh, data revision is that actually all those uh, exact data manipulation has been revealed just shortly after uh, the the power transition at each of this, uh, those uh, provinces, both in the case of uh, Liaoning, uh, uh, Liao, uh, not Liaoning, uh, yes, Liaoning, uh, Inner Mongolia and Tianjin. In, in Liaoning, basically, uh, they removed the former uh, provincial party secretary in uh, early 2015. And basically, soon afterwards, they have been, began to uh, re revise uh, Liaoning's economic uh, data down. And in Inner Mongolia also, I think Inner Mongolia replaced uh, its uh, party secretary, I think, back in uh, 2016. And actually, and, and the recent news revealed that actually all the data exaggerations are basically happening under the, uh, under the tenure of the previous party secretary. So after the revision, the, the benefit to the new secretary, new party secretary is really that it will have a much lower base and to some extent it will make future economic statistics looks better sounds like a good plan yeah so is there is there is there a broader trend at work or is it just more these in these uh these individual party secretaries deciding that they you know don't want to have to uh, they want to make their numbers look better going forward uh, i think actually it is because actually uh the background is that actually the past decades for china is basically a, a decade of exceptional high uh, investment growth. For many years, 
uh, fixed investment has grown at something like 20%. And investment as a share of GDP has been uh, close to 50%. So, and actually, under that, that type of environment, so you naturally have some provinces, they want to appear even uh, more uh, impressive than the national average, and they all have incentives to manipulate their numbers. And actually, if you, for example, uh, to, to just simply plot a chart, for example, of the, uh, the share of investment in, in each of these provinces, you will see in most cases there's a significant jump around 09, but some provinces, they shortly afterwards, they, uh, they began a reversing trend. For example, many of the southern provinces, but the many pro the other provinces, because probably they, are, they, are, they have a less, uh, less uh, healthy, healthy economy, they choose just to re remain, maintain this investment driving growth model. So many years after the uh, uh, China's uh, 2009 fiscal stimulus. And the result is, is really a, the current, the current uh, overstated investment numbers. And actually, I think to some extent, this, 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 those are not purely manipulated. There are some, in some sense, I think they're actually, some of the numbers they have, they reflect at least partially the reality that actually investment has been uh, has been growing at exceptional growth, uh, exceptional rate in those provinces during the past five, 10 years. So it's, but I think, but now it has been all blamed on the pro, uh, previous party secretaries and their wrongdoings. But I think that probably that claim is also kind of like extreme. I think, I think a, a fair assessment is that part of it is uh, manipulation over reporting part of it just reflects the unhealthy economic fundamentals, economic structure in, of China in the past uh, decade. So this is a good transition to uh, the national level. As, uh, as you know, there's been some talk of, uh, of Xi and Beijing giving up the national uh, GDP growth target, but that turned out to not be the case as of now. Um, one of the things you uh, you do as well at Macro Polo is write a reform tracker. Um, so maybe for our first reform, we could talk about national GDP targeting and what um, what the recent announcements and news around around this means for uh, means for economic uh, economic policy going forward. Okay, I, I think uh, I think the way to understand this is first thing is that. Uh, I think China still maintains, uh, the Chinese government still has still, uh, they will still honor their pledge to double GDP between 2010 to 2020. And I think the official calculation suggests in the next three years that will require a 6.3% annual growth, which is uh, slightly lower than the average growth in the, say, in the past three years. For example, this year's growth number is probably something around 6.9. So 6.3 is something like 0.6% lower. So actually this gives there, there some, re, some room to do some like, to introduce some of those uh, short-term painful but long-term beneficial reforms. Um, but as to, to whether they will introduce or, or reform, the pace of reform will pick up 
in the next three years? I'm actually not very sure because uh, the the top three policy uh, priorities for the ne next three years is number one, address financial vulnerabilities, and number two, reduction of poverty, and number three, to uh, address uh, pollution. Uh, and actually, based on c their current approach, for example, both in the case of like uh, addressing financial uh, financial regulation tightening or environment, it seems that overwhelmingly that both the central and the local government they choose to uh, use short term fix or like rely on primarily state based approach rather than, for example, as as reform will require that we'll use more introduce more market based uh, mechanism uh, or use more mar market based approach. So I'm not sure that whether reform, especially market reform, will really pick up in the next three years. But uh, but there are reasons to, to be uh, I think to be at least maybe uh, cautionally optimistic about this. But I'm not completely sure. <laughs> So, uh, so in general, could you let's close on uh, a, a sort of broader question about how to follow these issues. So, one of the challenges um, on on studying economic reform is is separating the smoke from the fire and really understanding to what extent um, announced reforms are real or will end up panning out. Um, so, do you have any advice out there, or, or or what are your best practices for for trying to to really understand the uh, the prospects of various reforms? I think by reform, I think my uh, my understanding of reform that it needs to uh, bring long-term positive institutional changes. Basically, means those reform matters. They need to have long-term consequences. An opposite example is that uh, Chinese government current approach to tackle uh, Beijing's air pollution problem. Actually, they actually re uh, achieved the, uh, their target, which is really impressive. But the approach they're using, for example, by just simply just shutting down all the construction activities in the northern part of China during the entire winter, I think that's first thing. That's that's not something that's very sustainable. You cannot expect that the the construction activity to be shut down during winter forever in the future. That that's number one. And and number two, actually, this by by relying through those short-term fixes, it actually it actually comes with a cost that you uh, you 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 tend to use less of those uh, and to uh, focus less on the root cause. For example, in this case, uh, the energy uh, the northern areas air quality has improved greatly, but their energy mix has not changed that much. So yeah, so. So that's basically number one that uh, to 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 assess whether this particular matters has uh, short term consequences or it's simply a short term fix. Number two is really implementation. I think on this, I think um, researchers or analysts has really they have to really just uh, follow follow how this policy being implemented. Uh, in the coming months and years, a, a good example is really China's uh, local government debt reform. Basically, the the institutional uh, foundation for local government debt reform has already been in place by early 2015. 
but it has just not been uh, very well implemented. So, and actually it has, and the, uh, ironic, Ironically, that even after the uh, implementation of this local uh, fiscal reform, actually local government debt become even le less under control than previously. So that's the number one factor. But this you have to just, uh, there's n not much you can know uh, beforehand. So you, you really, you have to follow cl closely and see whether this piece of policy got implemented in practice. Thanks so much for that that advice. Um, so we're looking to have you on for the next uh, provincial snapshot. Do you want to give our, our listeners a preview of uh, what are the next uh, provinces you might be thinking about writing on? I'm actually thinking about Guangdong province. Uh, actually, and my reason is that first thing is that Guangdong is, uh, as widely known, that it's most, uh, most dynamic and actually is also the largest local economy in China. And actually, in many areas, it's like five to 10 years ahead of the other areas. For example, uh, one thing that I want to uh, study is uh, Guangdong's uh, industrial uh, up upgrade upgrading uh, effort. Basically, Guangdong is probably the first uh, Chinese provinces that announced that it needs to uh, upgrade its, uh, uh, its, its needs to upgrade its uh, uh, economic structure means that it, it needs to push its local forms to climb up the value chain. So, so, so you should not just focus. You should. So, in, in other words, the uh, an example is that uh, Guangdong government probably back in uh, ten years ago already announced their goal is basically to have like more Apple-like companies in Guangdong rather than just Foxconn. So, I really want to examine. Uh, what Guangdong has achieved in this, and and what lessons and uh, what lessons it can be drawn for the rest of China, and the second is actually, it's a kind of like a economic history related uh, uh, topic. It's really uh, the resolution of the uh, of those uh, of those so-called window companies back in the late nineties uh, after the Asian financial crisis. Those window companies, they are actually all SOEs. They were created back in the 80s, um, back in the 80s, to help uh, Chinese local government, especially the local government in the coastal areas, to, uh, uh, to attract capital and technology from abroad. So that's why they are called, in Chinese term, called window company. They're basically serving as a window so that uh, new technology and uh, foreign capital can uh, uh, come in through this window. But actually, in reality, the, many of those window companies eventually they, they become very familiar, uh, uh, very similar to the current local government uh, financial vehicles. So basically, they are, they are all, all accumulate enormous, enormous amount of debt. And actually, by, uh, by the time of the Asian financial crisis, uh, and especially after the Asian financial crisis and the financing condition has been tightening in the international market, many of those window companies, because they are based in Hong Kong and they borrowed, borrowed in, in Hong Kong and from abroad, actually they have, they have encountered both liquidity and in many cases solvency problems. So many of them are on the verge of, uh, of bankruptcy. 
there are two high uh, high profile cases, both in Guangdong. Uh, in the first case, uh, it's a trust company, and it actually got closed down. And in the second second um, case, it's just an it's an SOE conglomerate. In, in that case, actually, uh, 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 actually, actually, uh, 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 China's uh, uh, China's the current uh, Wang Qishan, uh, Wang Qishan, who had just retired from the standing committee, actually. Uh, he made he in some way he made his name through his uh, resolution of that cases. So the, the and I really want to uh, study uh, 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 the resolution of those uh, so-called window companies, those highly indebted SOEs, and see what lessons uh, is there to uh, for the current resolution of local government uh, of budget uh, borrowing uh, platforms. So that's basically uh, two topics I currently have. Great. Well, looking forward to uh, to having you back on and discuss those. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.
They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.